Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a uh, professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is a beautiful, sunny May 11th, 2023, and have... Um, uh, one uh, fairly large study, a smaller study, and then an even smaller study to talk about today. So first, I want to talk about um, uh, uh, two studies published in this uh, week's edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. First line, venetic clax combinations in CLL. A bit of a misleading title. It's more of a, a comparison of four different fixed-duration treatments. Okay. Um, so... Let's talk about CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, the most common uh, leukemia uh, in adults. Sometimes I've heard it called the internist leukemia because you can see it on a CBC with a what looks to be a normal white blood cell count but a really high percentage of lymphocytes. Um, uh, and oftentimes these folks will be diagnosed with what they call stage zero CLL. They're asymptomatic, don't need treatment. Um, and it's chronic disease, it goes on for a long time. Um, it is uh, it's considered incurable. And uh, probably the biggest um, factor to note is prognosis, is do they have a, uh, a, seven, a chromosome 17p deletion or uh, TP53 alteration, which is housed on chromosome 17. So uh, our favorite guidelines say this is how you should treat CLL without that 17p deletion or TP53 abnormalities. And again, TP53 is our body's main tumor suppressor gene. Uh, you can do single agent um, BTK inhibitor continuously or a BTK inhibitor plus a CD20 monoclonal antibody for like six cycles. You could do venetoclax plus a CD20 monoclonal antibody, and that's for a period of time. That's a fixed duration, right? Um, you could do FCR or BR, so chemoimmunotherapy. Um, and so that brings us to this study, which is um, uh, the CLL13 study, uh, which was published uh, today in the New England Journal of Medicine. And now before we get into this, as a bit of context, context, uh, venetoclax plus obinutuzumab has beaten chlorambucil and obinutuzumab in CLL with regards to PFS. But, you know, nobody really likes to see chlorambucil as our control arm. So we will now see this venetoclax obinutuzumab regimen compared to chemotherapy, chemoimmunotherapy, real chemo, uh, FCR and BR. Uh, this is the CLL13 study, uh, and this is conducted by the German CLL group and Hovon, which in the Netherlands, and the Nordic CLL group. Uh, my dad's side of the family is half German, half Dutch, so it's a very, very, uh, very bizarre study, we could say. Uh, these were adults that previously untreated and warranted treatment, so they had to have some kind of uh, symptoms, and there are criteria for that. And they all had no deletion 17P or no TP53 mutations. These were really healthy patients, okay? So they had to have a low burden of coexisting conditions, and they use a scale here called the Cumulative Illness Rating Scale that looks at things like, you know, how many comorbidities you have, stuff like that. It goes from 0 to 56, with the higher score meaning the more comor comorbidities you have. The inclusion criteria was 6 or less, so very low, and they had to have a credit clearance above 70, so not just adequate, but really good renal function. Um, I mean, a credit clearance above 70 is well above the threshold for like cisplatin. That's a pretty high bar for renal function. So these are, are you're, you're going to select for a younger patient population, I think, when you do that, which we'll see. So they are randomizing four different patients to four different regimens equally. So one is chemoimmunotherapy, 
Uh, I'm just going to call this the chemo arm, and this is FCR if you're less than or equal to 65, or bendamustine rituximab if you're greater than 65. FCR, fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, rituximab. That's all rituximab. Uh, then you could do uh, venetoclax and rituximab, and that's venetoclax for a year and six cycles of rituximab. Or you could do venetoclax, then you, so, that's, so we have FCR, BR, we have the chemo regimen, we've got VR, then rituximab, we've got uh, venetoclax, obinutuzumab, and a brutinib. And this is venetoclax for a year, obinutuzumab for six uh, cycles, and a brutinib for three years, unless you have undetectable minimum residual disease, uh, um, like at one year, and then you could stop abrutinib. And then venetoclax plus obinutuzumab. So to, to break that down, we've got our chemoimmunotherapy. That was the old standard of care like 20 years ago for CLL. Then we've got venetoclax with rituximab, venetoclax with obinutuzumab, so ven with two different C20 antibodies. And then we've got venetoclax, obinutuzumab plus abrutinib, right? Boy, or IVO, or OV, however you want to abbreviate that. A couple things I want to point out here. Um, I think it's appropriate not to do FCR in someone that's over 65. Um, VRVO seems like a fine comparison, adding to brutinib, uh, which is the longest duration without a brutinib would go for three years uh, in that VOI regimen. The dosing of rituximab is standard CLL dosing, which is 375 per meter squared for cycle one, and then 500 per meter squared with the cycles two, three, four, and five for a total of six cycles of that CD20 antibody. The obinutuzumab dosing is fixed, where you get in cycle one, it's 100 milligrams on day one, and then 900 on day two. And then you get a gram on day eight and a gram on day 15. So in cycle one, you're getting three grams of obinutuzumab, and then you get uh, a gram at every cycle thereafterwards. So for a patient with a, a standard Tennessee patient with a BSA of two, you're going to get um, 5.75 grams of rituximab if you're on a rituximab arm, and you're going to get 8 grams of obinutuzumab if you are randomized to one of the two or one of the three obinutuzumab arms, um, or one of the two obinutuzumab arms, sorry. Now, these are both CD20 IgG monoclonal antibodies. They have molecular weights of 145 and 150 kilodaltons. They're about the same molecular weight. Um, so you're getting a whole lot more obinutuzumab, okay, um, compared to the folks getting uh, the rituximab CD20 monoclonal antibody. Okay, we have two primary endpoints in this study. Um, the first is undetectable minimal residual disease, or um, uh, basically no measurable residual disease at, uh, at a cutoff of 10 to the negative fourth, which is less than one cell in 10,000 uh, white blood cells and then progression-free survival, okay? Those are the two, the two primary endpoints. Um, they, it's about 1,000 people in the study, um, about 230 in each group. You can see right away, almost what you would expect is the people that are, are discontinuing the drug or the trial early, more in the chemoimmunotherapy group and in the three-drug group with venetoclax, obinutuzumab, and uh, ibrutinib. Looking at our, our baseline demographics, median age here is about 61, which strikes me as pretty young for CLL. Again, you had to have a credit clearance above 70 uh, to be included in this study. Um, only about a third of the trial were over the age of 65, uh, predominantly male, about 70% male. Uh, over the 70% had an ECOG performance status of zero. Again, very, very healthy patients uh, in the study. Again, a very highly selected trial design for healthy patients. Um, 
and um, about 40% had mutated IgHV, which is a good prognostic sign. And again, none of them had the, the really bad variant, the TP53 mutations or, del or uh, deletion 17P. So if we look at our, the first primary endpoint they talk about, which is um, undetectable minimum residual disease at month 15, um, that is much higher in the two arms that had obinutuzumab. So with the chemo arm, that was 52% uh, at 15 months, uh, no measurable residual disease. 57%, a little bit higher in venoclax rituximab. Um, and again, so those are the two rituximab arms, the chemo immunotherapy, and then rituximab. And then in the two obinutuzumab arms, it goes up to 86% uh, with venoclax obinutuzumab, and then 92.2% when abrutinib was added on top of venetoclax, uh, or added on top of, uh, yeah, ven obi. So you might take away from this that obinutuzumab is much more effective uh, than rituximab in, in achieving, uh, you know, undetectable uh, minim residual disease levels. Yeah, 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 I think you would say that. Uh, but again, you're getting a whole lot more uh, CD20 monoclonal antibody in the obinutuzumab arm, in my opinion. If I were somebody that's making a biosimilar rituximab product, I would try to do design a study comparing as much rituximab as they do with obinutuzumab um, and compare it to the standard obinutuzumab dosing, uh, because I think you're going to see a lot more folks using obinutuzumab with venoclax than rituximab going forward uh, after this if they aren't already. So. Now that's that's a surrogate marker here for CLL. Um, now this is a not a curable disease, um, so I think that getting to MRD negativity is is probably a, a good thing. Uh, we're not necessarily changing treatment off of that. However, in this arm, if you were on that Ven Obiabrutinib arm, if you did obtain uh, no uh, detected minimum residual disease, then you would stop abrutinib, um, and say, otherwise you continue abrutinib for a year or for three years. Okay. So that's the decision point in this study of how they're using this MRD testing, all right? The median follow-up in this study, by the way, is about a little over three years. So if we look at our progression-free survival, uh, we do see that the two obinutuzumab arms perform the best, followed by the chemoimmunotherapy and then VEN-R, um, um, kind of, you know, between the chemoimmunotherapy and the obinutuzumab arms. Um, so there is, there was a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival here. Um, so our, our three-year PFS rates are 90% in the ven obi abrutinib arm, 75% with chemoimmunotherapy. Um, you know, so that's, that's a pretty sizable difference. Um, but you're not seeing any separation of the curves here when adding abrutinib uh, to venetoclax obinutuzumab. You're getting more toxicity, which we'll talk about. Um, so from this, you know, a lot more CD20 monoclonal antibody is better than less. Whether that has to be obinutuzumab or not, I can't really say. Um, but people will probably favor obinutuzumab. Uh, and abrutinib doesn't appear to improve PFS at, at all to venetoclax obinutuzumab. And again, this is a fixed duration. It's a year of venetoclax. Um, and that's going to have, you know, presumably a lot of cost savings compared to doing a BTK inhibitor continuously until, until uh, disease progression. And the big question afterwards is when you do have disease progression, it's a chronic disease, they will have disease progression, is there still activity to, say, repeating venetoclax obinutuzumab years later? That was is data. We're still early in this era of doing fixed duration treatment that we will wait, you know, be waiting to see. From a toxicity standpoint, as you might guess, there's more toxicity with three drugs than with two. 
Uh, and we're going to focus on the infections here. So if you look at grade 3 infections that occurred in 10% uh, in with venetoclax rituximab, 13% with venetoclax obinutuzumab, similar, slightly maybe more with OB. Um, and then when you added a brutinib to venetoclax obinutuzumab, grade 3 infections are, are almost 21%. So twice what they are just with venetoclax rituximab. Um, now you also are going to see, besides the added infection risk of that three-drug regimen, there's more cardiovascular risk with AFib hypertension with the brutinib. That may be less pronounced with the calibrutinib, but the infection risk will be there, I think, if you, you replaced a brutinib with a calibrutinib. So, uh, and if you look in our, our supplementary appendix, and thank you to the authors for including the overall survival curves here, they're completely superimposable. They're exactly the same overall survival. It's a chronic disease, and it's a chronic disease without TP53. So, I, you know, these 65-year-olds in this study getting one year of venetoclax and six, six cycles of ovobenetuzumab very likely may die from something else before their disease progresses. Um, so it makes, I think, a, a strong argument for uh, continuing to consider fixed duration therapy for these folks. It's a very, very healthy patient population. That's also, I think, uh, I think notable as well in trying to extrapolate this to all patients with CLL. You know, CLL is a lot like multi-myeloma in my opinion. You've got a lot of older patients and um, it's, it's really hard to make, for me, a ton of treatment decisions based on just PFS when you're not going to see maybe overall survival differences because it is such a chronic disease. Uh, you really are factoring quality of life and toxicity, drug-drug interactions, financial toxicity especially uh, with this. Uh, but we, we are seeing now more and more options for CLL uh, with this fixed duration. I think it's going to have uh, the potential for a lot of cost savings for patients. Um, and, and so kudos to the, uh, the academic investigators for designing such a study. Uh, the next study I'm going to talk about is COSMIC-313. This is classic oncology. We've got, uh, we've got a standard first-line regimen. We've got a standard second-line regimen. Let's add them together and, and do that. So this is uh, cabozantinib plus nivolumab and ipi, so cabo-nivo-ipi, versus just nivo-ipi in metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Now, uh, if you go back in time here a few years, uh, nivolumab ipilimumab was shown to be better than sunitinib in only those with intermediate and poor risk metastatic renal cell carcinoma. They actually changed their study mid-protocol to not evaluate the favorable risk folks, probably because they did not like what they saw. Um, so this is not, and there is data for uh, cabozantinib and nivolumab first line, and this is adding two immune checkpoint inhibitors and a TKI up front, and if your liver hurts just thinking about it, um, yeah, that's where we're going with this. Um, now, they're only presenting progression-free survival here. Follow for overall survival is ongoing. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on this. Um, one thing I did know is that they actually have an exploratory, there was an exploratory analysis done of that uh, Cabo, Nevo, or Cabo Nevo study, um, Checkmate Niner, where they actually had some folks on Cabo with Nevo and Ipi, and it seemed to be tolerated uh, with the standard um, uh, ipilimumab dosing of one mg per kg uh, every three weeks for four cycles, uh, nivolumab three mg per kg for, three, uh, for four cycles every three weeks, and then you do the maintenance nivolumab. Um, and in this study, the cabozantinib dose is, is uh, 40 milligrams, lower than the traditional starting dose of 60 as monotherapy. Um, they actually changed their um, their design of when they were going to do their interim analysis for PFS because progression events were not happening as quickly as they had planned, uh, which is a good sign uh, for the patients here. Um, 
as we, and as we look at these patients, um, again, they're all um, uh, intermediate and poor risk. 75% uh, are intermediate risk, uh, so only 25% are poor risk, which is probably why it took longer to, to be able to, to test their PFS uh, because they are going to have a, you know, the poor risk folks have, you know, median survival in, in 40 months. Those intermediate risk are, are, are in the 20, you know, median OS in the 20 months range. Um, the PDL1 percentage less than 1% was 60 plus percent in, in both arms. This is, you know, if you look at Checkmate 9 or the PD1L1 percent less than 1% or indeterminate, like not tested, was 74%. So, um, kind of consistent here with what we've seen before in other studies that most of these folks were PDL1 uh, negative. Again, all metastatic patients, um, they do a PFS benefit in a separate cohort based on the first like 500 or 40 patients or something like that. So there are about 550 patients in the PFS cohort. The intention to treat is closer to uh, to 850, um, and that's where the I'm talking. And they're similar between the PFS population and the intent to treat population. Now, the primary endpoint here is progression-free survival, uh, and we see a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival with adding cabozantinib to nivolumab, ipilimumab. That hazard ratio is 0.73. Uh, with a 95% CI of 0.57 to 0.94, you know, decently, you know, hazard ratio 0.73 is, is, I think, very modest. Not huge separation of the curves. Um, the the Kapmeyer curves do separate pretty quickly at three months, and uh, the, the ratio of separation stays the same uh, over time. And you're looking at a, a you know, like a, an 18-month or let's do a 12-month improvement of, of progression-free survival from out. 50% to 60%, you know, so it's it's decent here. Um, now, our overall survival is not presented. It's it's barely even discussed beyond that it is ongoing. Uh, there is a, a, a really fun uh, comment here about to prevent bias, uh, actually the, the, uh, the patients, the investigators, they're not going to have the OS data. They can't even look at it. But the, uh, the study sponsor, the maker of cabozantinib, does have that information, and they've chosen not to release that now, which I do think says something. Um, probably not going to look good for overall survival of this study, if I had to guess. Um, if you look at our, our subgroup analysis, everything is kind of what you would expect, favoring for um, progression-free survival, favoring cabo arm, consistent with what we see in the whole trial population, with the exception of risk categorization. So almost all the benefit of this study uh, of adding cabozantinib was derived in the intermediate risk folks with a hazard ratio there of 0.63. If you look in the poor risk, that hazard ratio is 1.04. And if you look further at the progression-free survival Kapmeyer curves, initially adding CABO is beneficial for progression-free survival, but the curves do cross. And after after more than a year, uh, it looks like cabozantinib was maybe detrimental for long-term progression-free survival. Unclear if that's just noise. But I point that out because if you're going to take a more aggressive and, and almost by definition then more toxic regimen, you would hope to have more to gain in the patients that have the most to benefit from this, which would be those with the poor risk. And we're not seeing that here with adding cabozantinib uh, to nivolumab. Um, additionally, we're not seeing like big improvements in response rate, 43% with when you add cabozantinib versus just 36% with nevo-ipi. Complete response rate, 3%, 3%. Timed response, 2.4 to 2.3 month median. So you're not getting to response faster. Um, it's not obvious that there's benefit to this because after you progress, these patients that, that were on Cabo, Nevo, and Ipi, after they progress, 
a lot of them are going to continue on cabozantinib. Um And I, I'm not sure what the benefit is going to be to that with regards to overall survival. Um, I'm skeptical that we'll see that, that overall survival benefit actually adding this. Um, and grade three or four toxicities, 79% with cabo nevo ipi, 56% with nevo ipi. So a sizable increase. And they even talk about that in the abstract. And if they say there's more toxicity in the abstract, uh, you know there's more toxicity. Uh, and again, grade three or four AST or LT elevation, 20 and 27% versus 5 and 6% without cabozantinib. So uh, a lot more toxicity with this regimen, um, something that I doubt will be making it into mainstream uh, anytime soon. Um, we'll see. You know, uh, these drugs are hepatotoxic. And you have them together, it's not surprising you get a little bit more hepatotoxicity. The last thing I want to talk about, and I mentioned this or kind of alluded to this in this uh, Cosmic 313 study, is most of those folks in that study were PDL1 negative, and yet there's benefit to nivolumab and um, uh, to, or benefit to nivolumab. Um, and we know that higher expression of PDL1 is better, but not everyone that has high expression of PDL1 benefits from a PD1 or PDL1 blocking monoclonal antibody. And we know that some folks that uh, don't express PDL1 benefit. So there is a, a study from, from JCO of last week looking at a new um, biomarker test looking at functional engagement of PD1 and PDL1. So not looking at necessarily how much PDL1 is there, but how much of the PDL1 that is there is binding to, to PD1. So it's looking at that, that um, not just expression, but is that PD-1 expression leading to engagement of a T cell and you know our, our tumor cells or our antigen-presenting cells? Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing to follow in the future. They they are showing that uh, that uh, this uh, this PD-1 PD-L1 um, uh, biomarker uh, was uh, correlated with response better than PD-L1 expression in a retrospective cohort of patients. Um, so they're gonna have to, to validate this prospectively. Something to watch coming forward. Again, trying to figure out the best place to use uh, these expensive drugs and toxic drugs to figure out who is most likely to benefit um, to spare those who won't benefit from the unnecessary cost and toxicity. So that is what I have for you this week. Thank you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip and you can follow the show on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.